The day is dawning over the French port of Bastia, the most important commercial town of the island of Corsica. Light dances off the calm waters and plays with the colorful facades of 17th century buildings that build up over the escarpment that rises from the water and into the small city of 40,000 residents. Just then, the quiet of the dawn breaks with an eruption aboard the Corsica Ferry, an Italian ferry ship bringing people to and from the Ligurian city of Livorno every other week. The bomb rips through the ship's dormitory, injuring a sailor on board. Skipping the city's administration, the ferry company, and the interests in Livorno, the letter claiming responsibility for the explosion came directly to the management of a chemical plant run by Mont Edison in the city of Scarolino. It was signed, Survival Group for the Defense of Ecology, and sent an icy shiver down the spine of its reader. For the Italian chemical industry, it marked a turning point, the beginning of a sharp downfall that forced Montedison head Eugenio Cefis into the most surprising exile, trailing behind him court convictions and a light prison sentence. This is the story of how widespread unrest on the island of Corsica prompted the downfall of an industry magnate, Eugenio Cefis, an organizer of secret plots and one of the leaders of the far right during the years of lead. Hello, and welcome to the Years of Lead pod. I'm your host, Alexander Reed Roth. We have a shortish episode today. Hope you don't mind. Hope you enjoy it. Um, so Bastia may be small, but don't let its size fool you. Bastia is the busiest French port in the Mediterranean, mostly from Toulon, Marseille, and Nice, reaching its peak during the summer holidays in August. The second highest port of destination for Bastia travelers is the Ligurian city of Livorno, near Genoa, and they're not sending their best. In fact, local fishers have been noticing what they said looked like red mud in the sea where they fished. And gradually, the truth begins to surface. About an hour's drive south of Livorno is a factory recently built by Montedison, a giant of the Italian chemical industry, partly owned by the state. At this factory in Scatolino, titanium dioxide is produced important for adding color to paint, plastic, and enamels. And the factory produces slag, slurry, sludge, to the tune of 3,000 tons per day. The thing about this sludge, though, is that it's full of ferrous sulfate, sulfuric acid, and vanadium oxide, even chrome. This is really bad stuff that animals and plants can't metabolize, so it just stays in the biome as toxic waste. Italian officials didn't know what to do with this sludge, and Mon Edison wasn't about to stop manufacturing at their brand new plant. After all, who doesn't need paint, right? So a government investigation falls into action, and Mon Edison responded by threatening the 400 jobs at their factory, inadequate measure for parliamentary compliance on any day in the 1970s. The Minister of the Merchant Marine, Gioquino Ataguile began to intervene publicly. Coastal municipalities weighed in, and in 1972, the authorities granted Mondedison the rights to eject the sludge straight into the Mediterranean. If I drink a glass of it, I'd die instantly, and the liquid would gush out of me through the stomach, Mondedison engineer and product manager Giorgio Rando admitted. But mixed with seawater, it becomes harmless within seconds. Sulfuric acid is transformed into a very common sulfate, such as there are billions of tons in the sea, 
and the red color is iron hydroxide, common rust. It's only a spot without danger. The infamous agreement allowed the discharge of this red mud into a mile-deep trench in the waters between Capraia and Corsica, so a tanker would bring it from Scarlino 70 miles to the port of Livorno, and from there carry it to the sea aboard barges that would spew it out into the ocean. But controversy raged in France over using the seas as a chemical waste trough a new investigation opened in genoa and the port authority of livorno suspended its permission corsicans began mass protests against the red mud and its spreaders churches throughout bastia sent up prayers to god to save them from the spreading sea rust the fishermen blockaded the port of bastia with fishing boats spreading their nets over the sea surface to prevent any movement and this movement was supported so generally on the island precisely because of what a surprise the dumping had been, even to the authorities. The Italians had not consulted at all, supposing the waste would simply disappear into the depth of the ocean crevasse. And while the Italian officials still cared less about what the Corsicans thought, the input from Genoa and Tuscany forced them into another stance. So a month after the bomb came the news. Quote, Materials of this type, ferrous sulfate and sulfuric acid, as well as metals such as titanium, aluminum, manganese, vanadium, and chromium, cannot be poured into the sea for a long time, also to avoid oligodynamic and continuous effects. That was the technical report on the matter. Mon Edison proclaimed that they would develop a treatment facility, which would take three years for construction. And meanwhile, authorities found a new site for the dumping, just a few miles west from the original point, further from the Italian coast, but not significantly distant from Corsica to make a difference. The new declarations only incensed the island's inhabitants further, and their activity would make the bombing of the Corsica ferry look like child's play. I'll quote from Paolo Morando, whose book Eugenio Cefis, Una Storia Italiana di Potere e Misteri, I'm drawing much of this story from. And in fact, the end of the world happened in Bastia, a protest demonstration that resulted in very serious riots despite, or perhaps precisely because of, the intervention of the public safety, with over 20 injured, including a pregnant woman, the government building looted, the deputy prefect insulted, beaten, dragged down the stairs with their clothes torn. Yes, because in the Committee of Defense Against the Red Mud, not only clergy and communists, but also Gaullists and hard pro-independence regionalists met together for the first time. It was a volatile combination of interests, from French nationalists angered at the violation of sovereignty to regional separatists whose demands for dignity had suffered the final humiliation. Not to mention the communists, who waved the red flag in support for the economic needs of the island's fishers. The truth was that the red mud had an incredibly nasty impact on the fish of the area, and the Corsicans knew this more than anybody. A delegation arrived at Livorno and went straight to the magistrate Gianfranco Valietta with a trove of chemical evidence on the toxic sludge and its impacts. 
and on February 21st, we're just three weeks from the bombing of the Corsica ferry, the head of Montedison, Eugenio Chefis, personally received a court summons for, quote, serious damage to the biological resources of the upper Tyrrhenian Sea with toxic substances capable of killing fish and destroying plankton. The Corsicans weren't about to give in. They demanded audiences with the Italian ambassador to Paris. The mayors of the island sent a petition to the magistrate Villetta. The island's grade schools transformed their whole curriculum to discuss only ecological issues. This was something that would impact a whole generation, a whole island, a whole population. And what must have been felt as a ripple on the little island had a big impact in the form of waves of new blockades, even marches from Italian cities like Viareggio, Livorno, Piombino, to Provence and Marseille. These weren't protests that defied local authorities, and in some cases, they even took part in Viareggio, Ambulance sirens heralded the beginning of the march. In Marseille, more than a thousand demonstrators were welcomed into the amphitheater of the university's science department for a mass rally. Mont Edison could only respond by once again dangling the jobs of those employed at the Scarlino plant on a string and making threatening moves with a pair of scissors. Well, we can't do anything more than what we've planned, said the managing director, Alberto Grandi, and the last move would be just to shutter the plant. But suddenly an idea. And what an idea it was. Instead of ejecting sulfuric acid, chrome, and other toxic chemicals into the surface of the sea, they'd simply construct an exhaust pipe buried well below the surface of the sea, calculated at 100 meters. Presumably, they thought that anything discharged under the thermocline, the barrier uh, between the mixed layer and the ocean's abyss, after which the water temperature drops off a cliff, would have no impact on fish or tourism. So why not? Of course, there's a lot of issues with this. We can start with the fact that upwelling events can happen around Corsica that will lead to chemical constituents below the thermocline rising near surface. Usually this brings colder, nutrient-rich waters, great for fish and thus for fishing, but when there's lots of toxic chemical constituents below the chemocline, we are talking about serious problems. Also, the thermocline and the chemocline aren't exactly the same. The thermocline has a habit of rising and falling depending on things like sea surface pressure and temperature, not to mention winds. The chemocline is sort of a chemical boundary after which you get towards more acidity and less oxygen. And then there's the fact that sometimes the thermocline gets pushed down by warm pools, which makes 100 meters really insufficient to really pass underneath the mixed layer of the sea. And in that situation, you can get vertical mixing from Ekman spirals and other phenomena that will bring these toxins further to the surface. But there's also anaerobic species that live below the chemocline. So even if the sludge is discharged into the chemocline, it can still harm these prehistoric mysterious ecosystems about which we know very little, but surely have already harmed fairly irrevocably. <laughs> the Ministry of the Navy, Giovanni Pieraccini, tells the French ambassador in Rome, look, Serious problems of workers' employment are intertwined with those of pollution. The will of the Italian government is that all discharges into the sea from the plant be eliminated as soon as possible. It's doubtful that the old ASAP from the Navy was felt as a great assurance to the Corsicans. 
more protests erupted in Bastia and even in Sardinia, and now the separatists seem to really be gaining hegemony in the movement, setting fire to the French tricolor and chanting against both Italy and the French president, Pompidou. We are, by the summer of 1973, in an intractable international crisis triangulated between Italy, French, and Corsicans. And on the night, September 13th, it gets worse. A commando of Corsican separatists set two bombs on board the tanker moored in Scarlino Bay and ready to receive the red mud. The blast destroyed the left side of the tanker, but most striking was the fact that the explosion happened in an Italian port. The Corsicans weren't going to keep rioting and destroying boats on their home turf. They were taking the fight to their much bigger neighbor. Adding insult to injury, Magistrate Villietta has the destroyed barge and its neighboring vessel impounded, and he determines to close the Scarlino factory indefinitely. In step the trade unions, who don't want to see these 386 employees completely laid off, and the negotiation results in the fantastic requirement to keep the factory going with a staff that works three days a week. So the factory is still in action, and still producing toxic waste, which is still getting dumped into the Mediterranean. It's more than enough operation at the plant to churn out toxic waste over the legal limit. And, while this impossible compromise, which serves absolutely nobody, is allowed to proceed, on February 13, 1974, Chefis is indicted, along with six others, including a feckless ecologist and two barge captains. The charges read, quote, in order to compete with each other, within the scope of their respective powers, to put the Scarlino plant of the Mont Edison Joint Stock Company into operation, planning the discharge into the sea of the residues from the production of titanium dioxide and implementing it through the tankers Scarlino 1 and Scarlino 2, thus damaging with several executive actions of the same criminal design the biological resources of the Upper Tyrrhenian and Ligurian Sea by introducing into the waters of the area indicated by the ordinance of the Port Authority of Livorno on 6th of March 1972 and subsequently into that of 7th February 1973, toxic substances derived from the production of the aforementioned Scarlino plant capable of killing marine organisms and destroying plankton. Charges against Sea Captain Massimi went further, indicating that he ejected the barge's content straight into the water of the smallest island off the coast of Tuscany, quote, deteriorating and partially making the territorial waters unusable. Chaffis didn't even show up in court to face the Livorno and Bastia Fishers Associations or to hear the prosecutor ask for the one-year prison sentence. The prosecutor fumed, quote, those who are at the top must respect the law more than others, if he doesn't do it, as in this case, because he pursues an intention of personal economic power, his responsibility is greater than that of the small industrialist who pollutes the sea to develop his company. On April 27th of the same year, that is, just a month and a half after the charges had been filed, the judge handed down a three-month sentence against Chefis, with the others obtaining similar convictions. The lawyers for Mont Edison declared, quote, in light of this sentence, we will revise the company policy regarding the management of the plants that the new managers have inherited from the previous ones with the mass of ecological problems whose solution requires unavoidable technical times. The company promises to operate for an ecological reclamation where the concrete possibilities allow it and commits to placing the environmental problem as a prejudicial factor for the 
problem of new investments. This was really groundbreaking as a case that brought corporate responsibility for ecological damage and remediation into the lexicon. For Chefis, it was only the beginning. Already across the country at the Porto Marghera industrial complexes in Veneto, workers are joining together in assemblies that bypass the unions, Communist Party, and even the increasingly entrenched new left organizations, calling for Montedison to take responsibility for the numerous cases of silicosis and lead poisoning. I talk about this more in the episode on the origins of autonomia, focusing on the Assemblea Autonoma di Porto Marghera, but for these purposes, it's simply useful to note that Chefis was facing pressure from coast to coast and even convicted and sentenced to months in prison for environmental crimes by the end of 1974. Plus, there's another case brewing. In Spinetta Marengo, around the Alessandria area, a similar titanium dioxide factory was spewing out the same stuff, sulfuric acid and ferrous sulfite, into the Bormida River, killing the fish. In 1973, the Mon engineer Eugenio Passaro is convicted and sentenced to jail time for this pollution, and the situation drags on. The Alessandria District Court even sent Chaffius and six others summonses to appear in 1975. So, you should note that the name Eugenio Chaffius shouldn't be unknown to us. As I discuss him at some length in the episode covering the murder of Pier Paolo Pasolini, as well as the Assemblea Autonoma. Having been the agent of the Servizio Informazione Militare, or the SIM, during the resistance, Chefis came up in a post-war period through networks tied to military intelligence as he climbed the ladder of the state oil company, ENI. His orderly during the resistance, for instance, was a guy named Colonel Modestino Fusco, who became a Carabinieri colonel after the war and was present during intriguing moments of the coup plots and cover-ups by the CIFAR that occurred during the 1960s. Chefis was also close to General Giannadelio Maletti of the Servizio Informazioni Difesa, which the CIFAR reformed into after the plots were exposed in the late 60s. In testimony, Chefis explained, quote, Maletti was my classmate from the military school and academy, but he wasn't one of my friends. We were of completely different mindsets. Good friendships, as you can tell. He was someone we all valued as an officer of the Arma, but when he was made officer of the Seed, he was the most denied person, the most completely unfit to do a job there. A person who lived through the myth of his father, who died with a gold medal, who committed suicide because he lost the battle in Africa. A head-to-toe combat officer. Being a secret service officer or something like that wasn't his job. So we all laughed when we talked about him. Seed officer. Well, why not? And all the comrades, the course mates, in turn, he was completely out of place. A man who would blush if he had to tell a lie. Imagine him, chief of the Secret Service. So, the only thing that's true about this is that the two attended military school under the fascist regime, and Chefis found the establishment lacking in virtually every way. He thought it was poorly maintained, dilapidated, filled with backward-thinking people, and it's speculated that his sad experience in the military contributed to his ultimate decision to move into the resistance. But... Maletti later stated that his relationship with Chefis went beyond the fascist epoch. Quote, I don't remember having exchanges of professional knowledge with Chefis except those concerning our common experiences at the Academy in Medina in 1937 and 1939. 
Our ways, as I said, separated until the fortuitous and warm meeting in Rome in 1970 or 1971. I believe at a party at the American Embassy. Later, perhaps in 1972, I was his guest at a dinner party at his home. Among the guests, I only remember Minister Preta and Rachel. It seemed to me that Chefis was not in a good mood, and later in the evening I asked him why. Chefis replied with a Milanese phrase, quote, You can either kill all these ministers or you buy them. I don't remember if he gave me names, but I don't think so. In fact, according to a 1974 article in L'Espresso, Maletti produced regular reports for Chefis on the state of left-wing revolts, so the notion that they were distant frenemies is quite unlikely. Indeed, Colonel Nicola Falde later disclosed to judges in a memo that Maletti was Chefis' man in the military intelligence and that the latter hoped to support the former's ascent to the head of the agency. Maletti, of course, denies that. There's so much speculation on these questions that it's really hard to know what's real and what isn't. Some say that Chefis and Maletti were supporting Fonfani against Andreotti, who was closer to Gianni Agnelli, known more as a playboy and supporter of parliamentary democracy. Others say that Chefis and Agnelli had a pretty close connection, but it would appear that this was quite limited by ideology. See, Chefis was one of the first in Italy to warn against globalization. In this speech delivered on February 23, 1972, at the Military Academy of Modena, titled, My Homeland is Called Multinational, Chefis stated, quote, I think that today a double responsibility is imposed on the officer. On the one hand, he must be a citizen of the world because he has a worldwide task for the defense of peace. On the other, he must understand better and better the political and above all economic mechanisms within which influence our future more than military power. On the basis of these data, some scholars predict that the share of world production controlled by multinationals is destined to increase further, he added. Also considering the economies of scale enjoyed by these firms, i.e. the possibility of making economies through the coordination of their activities, the same scholars predict that in 2000, i.e. in less than 30 years, more than two-thirds of world international production will be handed to the 200 or 300 major multinational companies. He goes on, multinational companies cannot be asked to stop and wait for the states to work out an adequate response on the political level to the problems they pose. Just as, and the Italian experience teaches us, one cannot ask the trade union power, which is the other major economic force that exists in modern democratic states, to block the workers' claims while waiting for the state to elaborate the adequate responses. The economic forces have their own logic of development, which must be directed by the political power toward the best results on the social level. But to achieve this objective, the states must always develop up-to-date responses. I would almost say invent ever new economic policy instruments. In short, it is a question of a continuous challenge on the outcome of which the future of Western society will depend. If the forces operating at the national level fail to keep pace with economic development and its problems, we will see a progressive emptying of national political power. The main decision-making centers will no longer be so much in the government or in parliament, but in the management of large companies and in the trade unions, which are also on the way to international coordination. The central state bodies will tend more and more to carry out a task of mediation between one company and the other, between companies and the trade unions, between businesses and local self-governing bodies. And lastly, he goes on, quote, 
I am not saying that this prospect of emptying the national states and annihilating that set of ideological, historical, and traditional values that they have represented is the best and most desirable project. I'm saying that we are dealing with a de facto tendency of modern society that can be reconciled with those same ancient values only if the national political power is able to respond to the challenge of the economy by profoundly renewing its role. There's that word, renewal. So, in 1972, Chefis has warned the Italian military that corporate power was overcoming the limits put up by nation states and that soon the Italian state would have little more than mediating power between multinational corporations. In fact, this was basically the same analysis produced by the Red Brigades two years later in their broadside against what they called the imperialist state of multinationals, which, funny enough, had the acronym SIM, which evoked the intelligence service under which Chefis had served during the resistance. And the funny thing was that Chefis was delivering these speeches because, in his rise to the head of Montedison, he was begging the Christian Democrats to invest more money into Italy's flagging chemical industry. Chefis's vision of the future was like Fanfani's, in which a strongly conservative state held the reins on workers' power and pumped money into protected state enterprises in order to maintain the domestic economy against competition from the outside. It was this formulation, actually, that led people of the extra-parliamentary left to lambast Fanfani for fanfascismo, as Lotta Continua called it. At the same time, the critique of multinational corporations, globalization, and neoliberalism was real, and within a decade or two, even socialist leader Bettino Craxi would be warning Italians against the erosion of the state in the name of capitalist expropriation. Now, I'm not going to say that Gianni Agnelli, who owned Fiat, was total enemies with Chefis, but they represented two completely contradictory elements of the ruling class, and while Chaffee supported cracking down on the movement of the Italian state towards neoliberalism through a strong and centralized regime, it looks like Agnelli was more interested in riding the tiger of economic restructuring throughout the 1970s and 80s. And, you know, a lot of people said they hated each other. Andreotti was an interesting figure here because he proved quite flexible, capable of being the mediator, perhaps exactly what Chefis was warning against becoming. These warnings came in 1972, precisely the time Chefis is moving away from ENI, the oil company, into Monteresent and facing the bombs of Corsica. At this time, he also left his alleged leadership position in Propaganda Due, the renegade Masonic Lodge, through which it appears he had launched attacks against Andreotti's supporters, attempting to develop a power base for industrial and financial support for subversive actions against workers and liberals. According to the work of Massimo Teodori in the Commission of Inquiry into the P2, Quote, Chefis uses the preeminent position in the economic and financial fields delegated to him by politicians to organize a center of power that makes ever more aggressive use of the resources of the group he manages to annex to himself men, groups, and resources in the various sectors of national life. The Chefis system, 
gradually becomes a real potentate, which, by exploiting public entrepreneurial resources, heavily conditions the press, illicitly uses the secret services of the state for information purposes, practices intimidation and blackmail, carries out unscrupulous financial maneuvers beyond the limits of legality, corrupts politicians, establishes alliances with ministers, parties, and currents. The ability of the man and his system to involve elements in the most disparate sectors is exemplary. First, ENI, and then Mont Edison, with the Chefis presidency, are not simple, even if powerful economic financial lobbies, but are used as instruments of intervention to influence the course of events in the country. So Teodoli insists that Chefis's successor at P2, Licio Gelli, didn't just inherit the Chefis system, but overlapped with it in a Mobius-like way, with, quote, elements of continuity between the Chefisian and Gellian s- systems. One of the men most involved in this combination system was a former aviation war hero named Ugo Nuta who had been part of the SIM during the war and was nominated to the head of Montedison's pharmaceutical group Carlo Erba by Chefis, rising to the head of the largest pharmaceutical nexus of Italy after the merger with Farmitalia. Niuta ends up becoming involved in the Banco Ambrosiano scandal and committing suicide in London in 1984, but more on that another time. For these purposes, still in the mid-70s, Chefis is further roiled in 1974 when the oil scandal hits. The government of Mariano Rumor is laid low by claims of three years and some $300 million in kickbacks to center-left politicians in order to co-sign rising fuel prices. It was a debilitating setback for the center-left formula, but it also kicked up dirt in Chefis' face. So, going into the late 70s, Chefis is pursued by a number of problems. There's the red mud scandal for which he might be facing time. There's the oil scandal that he's trying to run away from. There's constant speculation about his integration with the military intelligence and the strategy of tension. There's the restructuring of the economy, which threatens the livelihood of the already failing Mont Edison that he controls. It's a real mess, and he's trying to fight everything at once. He thinks that newspapers are the way to control public opinion, so he helps foster a splinter in the Corriere della Sera of good but right-wing journalists. They develop a paper called Giornale Nuovo to support Fanfani, but Fanfani fails to win the presidency and then loses the divorce referendum. So the Giornale becomes kind of useless to Chefis. Similarly, he rehabilitated the Gazzetta del Popolo in Torino to spite Agnelli, but this too falls rather flat. He also buys up the newspaper Il Messaggero, and then he's put up on charges of financial irregularities in that purchase. So his media control strategy is a real kind of failure, and it, while showing that he's pretty powerful, it also shows that his enemies are gaining the upper hand. Of course, Chefis still has an ace up his sleeve, and that ace is called the Italian legislative system. A law is formulated. It is rumored that parts of it are actually written at Mont Edison headquarters in Milan, and it has two provisions in particular that would protect anyone who has polluted waterways prior to the passage of the bill. But bills take time to pass, and Chefis did not have time to kill while his appeal was painfully winding its way through the process stretched out as thin as possible by his powerful lawyers. 
Also, the so-called Merli law was originating in Livorno, a place clearly tilted against Chefis. So Monteddison tried to an alternative route with a different bill for the Senate. Approved in November 1975 by the Public Works and Communications Commission, the new Santalco law had only four articles, so it's pretty short, but it would absolve Montedison. Chefis personally wrote to the lawyer, Giuliano Vasali, asking him to prolong the environmental case for just a week to give the Senate an opportunity to pass the bill. The bill passes, but the court of Livorno rules against Chefis anyway, saying that it won't cover him. By this point, April 1976, Mon Edison has to return to the Merli Law as its last resort, trying everything it can to push it through Parliament. The law is passed on April 30th, just two weeks after the courts found the Santalco Law unsatisfactory. So he rushes through this bill that's going to absolve him, and he moved heaven and earth, and ultimately he got himself off the hook. He was acquitted, and in 1980, the Supreme Court upheld his acquittal. By then, however, Chefis was already in exile, having fled the country the year after he had seemed so invincible. In fact, in August 1976, Chefis left Italy, repatriating to Switzerland and spreading the sense that he was not long at Montedison's head. And in 1977, he finished with Italy entirely, moving into exile and abandoning his home country. Chefis remains an enigmatic figure in the history of Italy, accused of designing the assassination of the head of the state oil company, Enrico Mattei, in order to fill his shoes. Chefis's activity within renegade Freemason groups and proximity to military intelligence indicate a man of tremendous intrigue. Shunning the spotlight, few speeches and interviews of the man remain to today's researchers, but what emerges is a portrait of both a far-right ideologue and an economic activist with keen insight into the restructuring of the global economy through the primacy of the multinational corporations. He did keep a lower profile than Agnelli, and his plays were far less successful, but he was no less significant as the supporter of a faction within Italian politics that militated against leftism and liberalism amid colossal transformations in cultural, economic, and political life. Was Chefis the grand maestro of an anti-democratic strategy or a hapless traditionalist thrown onto the ash heap of the Italian state by liberalism? The answer is probably somewhere in the middle. It will never not be funny, though, that this titan of Italian industry was laid low by a group of angry Corsican fishermen, illustrating the complexity of the period and its myriad points of political leverage. So that's it for today. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you liked it, chip in a few dollars maybe at the Patreon and get access to some bonus episodes and data. As always, I'm Alexander Reed Ross, the host, and you've been listening to the Years of Land Pod.